my hand and trust in Trust in me. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter number 5 this morning. Exodus chapter number 5. I will have to admit before we even get started so that you can just eliminate this possibility from your mind. It is not a possibility. It's a guarantee that as I am over, I'm going to be preaching to this side more this morning. It may not necessarily be because you need it more, but there's twice as many people. So I want to make sure I get this side well covered this morning. So thank you all for making sure that at least one side of the sanctuary is full like a normal Sunday morning. And, uh, but uh, thankful that people get to take time off away with family for a few days. And uh, many people traveling. And uh, we will welcome them back soon, very soon. And I'm excited that they get that chance and excited that I'll get a chance later, another time. Uh, Exodus chapter number 5, let's stand together this morning in honor of the Word of God. We'll read just a couple of verses. Exodus chapter number 5, verse number 1. It, just to real quickly, Exodus 5 brings us up to the moment that Moses is standing in front of Pharaoh for the first time. We had the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And God giving Moses what to say in Exodus chapter 4. And in Exodus chapter 5, we, we find Moses standing face to face with the ruler of the known world, if you would, at that time. And uh, uh, this is how this conversation begins. Uh, verse number 1, Exodus 5. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And here's our text verse this morning, verse number 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Let's pray this morning. Brother Tony Powell, if you would pray for us. You may be seated. Moses has come before Pharaoh with a directive from the Lord. The children of Israel have been in Egypt for 430 years. For much of that, they've been in bondage to Egypt for that time. And God's time was uh, for them to, if you would, incubate into a nation has ended. So now it's time for God to send in Moses, his man, and deliver them out of Egypt and begin the promises that were made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter number 12. And when Moses steps into this, no doubt, grand hall where Pharaoh would have been sitting up on his throne, and as we know, Moses and Pharaoh would have known each other, and Moses looks to Pharaoh and simply says, hey, God said, or the Lord said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is the response that honestly doesn't take us by surprise because as we know, for those of us that have studied the Bible for any extended period of time, we know that Pharaoh wasn't a humble man. 
And Pharaoh was definitely the ruler of the world, not just in position, but in his mind as well. And he said this, who's the Lord? Who is the Lord? Now, we can beg that maybe he didn't really know at this point. Now, I I don't necessarily believe that. I believe he knew who Moses was talking about. He had known the children of Israel as long as he'd been alive. Because they'd been in that land and the children of Israel had been worshiping their God to the best that they could while in bondage. And so for him to say, who is the Lord? It wasn't that he didn't know who he was exactly. I think partly he didn't know entirely, but mostly it was just coming from the place of an extremely arrogant heart. That said, who is the Lord? Because obviously you're looking at him. I think in the day and age in which we live, this is the same question in the minds and the heart of many people. Unfortunately, it's a question in the minds and heart of a lot of Christians that hasn't truly been answered by their actions. Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And if we find it's very interesting, I want to take for a few minutes and go through the next few chapters. But in the next 10 chapters, God responds 14 times by saying, I am the Lord. Look in verse number two of chapter number six. Then the Lord said, uh, verse number two, and God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. We see very next chapter, same verse, next chapter. What does God say? I am the Lord. He's saying, hey, who am I? I am the Lord of past promises. Verses 6, he says it again of the same chapter. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. From under the bondage of Egypt. Uh, He's not only the Lord of past promises. He's the Lord of present deliverances. In verse number 29 of the same chapter. He comes unto Moses and says. I am the Lord. And we find that he is the Lord that persuades Moses. To go back to Pharaoh. And once again send the message. I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 7. We find that he is the Lord that sends plagues. As he begins to send the plague, starting with the water into blood. In Exodus chapter 8, we find that he is the Lord. I am the Lord that is partial to his children. Because it comes to the plague of the flies. And he says, listen, at this point, I'm going to put a barrier between my people and the people of Egypt. And my people are not going to have to endure the same plagues as the children of Egypt. Aren't you glad you have a God that is partial to his children? Hey, I know that God is not partial in that he will turn some away uh, to his son's blood and some he will not. But when it comes to his children, he's very partial. He's partial in that he corrects us. He's partial in that he supplies our needs. He's partial in a lot of ways. And I think he, we, he shows that partiality through the rest of the plagues. Because we see the children of Israel, they didn't have to endure the same that the children of Egypt had to. Why? Because I am the Lord. He's the Lord that's partial to his children. And may I say it today, you know what? If you're not his child, may I say it this way? He is impartial towards you. I didn't say he doesn't love you. I didn't say he didn't send his son to die on the cross for you because he did. But when it comes to dealing out blessings, God's very good at blessing those that are his. 
In Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, we see He is the Lord that is worth passing on to your children. He says, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy sons, verse number 2, Exodus chapter 2, or 10, and of thy sons' sons, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them. Why? That ye may know that I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, we see that he is the Lord that passes judgment. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the story that is told of the Passover lamb and the death angel that passed through. But you know, it wasn't just any old angel that passed through. Because the Bible says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see, not only is he a a Lord that is all amazing and partial and all these things, he's he's a Lord that passes judgment on those that refuse to believe in him. In Exodus chapter 14, twice, we see that he is the Lord that puts to shame potentates. In Exodus chapter 14, it says, I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. You see, Pharaoh wasn't the only potentate that learned the hard way who the Lord was. Oh, there was many, but one that comes to mind quickly is Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar says in uh, Daniel chapter number 6, I am the Most High. I am lifted up. And then we see very soon thereafter, these are the characteristics that we see of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of the known world at that time. The Bible tells us he was driven from men, did eat grass as oxen. His hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, his nails like birds' claws. The king of the known world. When faced with the Lord, realized he was nothing. But then a season later, what did Nebuchadnezzar, his tune had changed. Because we see at the end of that chapter, he says this, I, uh, um, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. You see, Pharaoh looked at Moses and said, who's the Lord? And the next ten chapters, guess what Pharaoh found out? Oh, that's who the Lord is. Oh, the Lord is the one that can turn water into blood. And the Lord is the one that can send flies and frogs and lice and boils and hailstones and darkness that can be felt. Who is the Lord? He's the Lord that has the power of life and death, literally. He found out. Nebuchadnezzar found out who the Lord was. Hey, Cyrus who was just shortly after Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Ezra, Cyrus stands up and says, and he just starts proclaiming. He doesn't even know what he's saying. The Bible is very clear that Cyrus had no idea what he was doing. We don't know that Cyrus was saved or got born again. We believe Nebuchadnezzar probably did. But Cyrus, we have no idea. But what did God do to Cyrus? Cyrus just stood up and started proclaiming. Hey, let's go build a temple for God. And it wasn't any question which God he was talking about. You see, even the most powerful man on the earth, God, when he wants to, steps in and goes, I'm the Lord. Who is the Lord? I am the Lord. In Exodus chapter 15, he goes a step further and tells the children of Israel, you know what? I'm not all the Lord of all those things, but I am the Lord that healeth thee from the diseases of Egypt. 
Aren't you glad that God's a healer, not just of physical things, but he's a healer of spiritual, emotional, and mental diseases? He's a healer of those things that can't be healed any other way. There are some things that can be healed medically, and as far as we've come, there's sometimes it feels like we haven't come very far when it comes to medical things. But you know, there's a lot of spiritual things that there's only one healer that even has a degree of impact in that, and that's the Lord. And then a chapter later in Exodus chapter 16, when the children of Israel are wondering, hey, we're starving to death. I mean, it's been half a day since we've eaten. Don't you remember? We used to have watermelons, and we used to have chicken fried steak, and we used to have leeks and garlics, and started just spewing out lies about all these things they thought they had in Egypt. Moses, what in the world are you doing? You're killing us. God says, okay, fine. Not only am I the God of all of these things, I'm the Lord that will provide for you. And he starts feeding them. Aren't you glad that you know who the Lord is? And let me ask you today, if you do not know who the Lord of the Bible is, I would like to say that today could be that day. Even the disciples in Matthew were asked of Jesus. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Whom do men say that I am? And the disciples' response was, say this, was this. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elias. And others say you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus Christ turned to them and says, But whom do you say that I am? And today, that's my question to you. Whom do you say that he is? I'm not talking about a lip service. I'm talking about a belief in your heart. Who is the Lord to you today? I'd like to look at three, three different ways we see the Lord, and we see it here in Scripture. Go with me to Exodus chapter number 12. We find Pharaoh's final response to this question that he asked. Who is the Lord? Who did Pharaoh say that was, was the Lord? Verse number 29, Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt... From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Verse 31, and he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. Unfortunately, in the life of Pharaoh, I think this, to some, he is the Lord of others. To some, he is the Lord of others. Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, fine, Moses. The question has been answered. I know who the Lord is. Now you go and serve him. You say, well, Moses was getting what he wanted, yes, but my point today is not about what Moses got. My point today is what Pharaoh didn't get. Now, so many today say, hey, I I recognize who the Lord is, and I I see who the Lord is of the Bible, but he's the Lord of you. And I know you need him, so you take him. You take your family and go serve the Lord. Uh, I'm okay. Hey, 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 Moses, I, I see who the Lord is, but he frightens me, so you take him. 
We see this same type of situation that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai between the children of Israel and God. Remember when Moses goes up into the mountain and the, the, the mountain is shaking and there's lightning. And, and honestly, put yourself in their shoes. It had to be terrifying. But what was their response when Moses came down off that mountain? He said, listen, Moses, you go talk to him. And then you come and tell us what he says. But we don't want to be face to face with that. They were doing the same thing. Moses, let him be your Lord. And we'll just hear him through you. But I don't want him to be my Lord. Because my Lord terrifies me. And my Lord puts a standard on my life I'm not willing to adhere to. My Lord says I have to obey him. My Lord says I submit to him. My Lord says his way or the highway. My Lord says I can't take anything that's mine and what is his. I take only what's his. So be knowing that that's the Lord, then you take him. And Pharaoh looks at Moses and says, fine, he's the Lord, but he's the Lord of you, not of me. Why would some see him as Lord of others? I think for several reasons. Number one, because of perceived or even real injustices. Hey, there's a lot of injustices in this world. People have been abused unbelievably and things have happened in people's lives that are inexplicable, horrible beyond all reason. And without a doubt, there are things taking place even today that if we knew the details would literally shake us to our roots. But the reality is, all of those things are not the fault of God. They're the fault of man. I couldn't even tell you on both hands and both feet how many times I've talked to people out so winning. Well, just filled with hatred towards God because of perceived injustices in their life that they attribute to the feet of God. And I'm here to tell you today, uh, it's not God's fault that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It's not God's fault that sin is ruling this world. It's not God's fault that judgment is falling. It's my fault. It's man's fault. It's not God's fault. Some people will say he, he, he can be Lord, but let him be Lord of others because you don't know what's happened to me. And I turn to them and say, hey, this is all the reason more he should be your Lord because he's the only one that can heal what has happened to you. He's the only one that can give you victory over the demons, if you would, that has happened to you, whether real or perceived. I think another reason that people see him as Lord of others is because of the puffed up image of themselves. I think this is at the root of almost all of it. Now, this was Pharaoh's fault. Psalms chapter 10 verse 4 says, The wicked, through pride of his countenance, will not seek God. God is not in all his thoughts. I think this is the real reason most people say he can be Lord of others. It's because they don't feel like they are in a position that needs him. Jesus Christ himself said he's come, uh, uh, he came not to heal the righteous, but to heal the sick. Why? Because somebody doesn't go to a doctor unless they feel there's a need to go. And nobody comes to God unless they feel like there is a need for him. And only someone who is completely filled with pride would ever be able to look at the Lord and say, I don't need that. Not only because of perceived injustice, puffed up image, I think another reason that people see him as Lord of others 
is because of the attachment of possessions. You know, in Mark chapter number 10, we have the story of the rich young ruler. He comes before Jesus and says the words that all of us wish we would hear when we go door knocking. What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Brother Tyrone, you had next, next Saturday, you knock on someone's door, and they come to the door and say that. What would you do? Faint? I would hesitate to say the least. Because why? You're not expecting that. But this man comes to Christ. And he says, hey, what must I do to be saved? We know the story. <clears throat> and Christ gives him a list of commandments. And he said, I've done that. <laughs> Next. And Christ says, okay. Go and sell all that they have and give it to the poor. Does that mean giving money away gets you to heaven? Of course not. Christ saw the root problem in this rich young ruler, and it wasn't that he was amoral, although we all are. It was that he had more attachment to his money and his possessions than he needed Jesus Christ. I think there's a myriad of reasons why we look at the Lord and say, hey, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's the Lord, but he can be the Lord of you. I don't think I want him to be the Lord of me. Hey, if we're not careful, even as Christians, this is the way we live. How many days this week did you need him? So much that you were on your face before him before you did anything to make sure that he was part of it. Hey, it's easy for us to look at those that have never been saved, never trusted Christ, never made him Lord of their eternal destiny, but have we made him Lord of our single day destiny? And said, Lord, I have to have you today. No, he's not the Lord of the weak and the feeble. He is the Lord of those that still have their youthful energy. It's unfortunate that young people, myself being included, because I'm very young, that we put a lot of confidence in our strength and our energy. And the Lord has been very gracious and I have not seen that strength or energy wane yet. But I know it's around the corner. It's close enough. It's as near as the coming of Christ. It could happen any moment. And the reality is, it is shame on me if I am not looking to the Lord as He is Lord of me today and that if I try anything outside of His strength and His direction, it will be a failure. I think many see the Lord to some. He is the Lord of others. Go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings, I'm sorry. 2 Kings. Where in the world am I going? 2 Kings, chapter number 17. We bring ourselves to the next perspective that we see that people have of the Lord. In 2 Kings, chapter 17, to bring us up to date of what's going on here in the history of the children of Israel. The children of Israel, we know back at the time of Solomon, the kingdom was divided after Solomon. Rehoboam was the king of Israel. And of, of Judah, and Jeroboam became the king of Israel. Israel was ten tribes, and Judah was two tribes, centered in and around the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you know much about the kings and their stories, there was not a single righteous king that ever served over the children of Israel. Now, the king of Judah had good kings and bad kings, and to be honest, they had more good than bad, honestly. Uh, but the king of the Israelites had no, they had no chance. Poor, king, poor Israelites. If you were of the ten tribes, I felt sorry for them. They never had a single good king. I mean, their kings were horrible. 
that were just bad. And finally God got fed up with it. And in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17, we have the account where the king of Assyria comes up, grabs the children of Israel and says, okay, you're mine now. And so he takes them off to Babylon, Assyria, and takes them as his own. Now, 2 Kings chapter 17, the king of Assyria decided, hey, I just vacated this property, this land. I pulled everybody out of it that belonged there. And so what did he do? He started sending people back into that country. Now, he didn't send back the Israelites. He sent back all kinds of nations of peoples. All right, and that's where we bring ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 17. So this is the re-inhabitation of Samaria and the area surrounding Israel. And the king of Assyria is sending them in. All right, and we pick up in verse number 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava. Verse 24 of 2 Kings 17. And from Hamath and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. And behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests, whom ye brought forth thence. Let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So, verses 24 through 28, we get the history behind what is happening. These people go and inhabit the area of Samaria. God sees that there's no fear of him in their eyes or hearts at all. So he sends lions. How many of you guys realize that Israel is greatly inhabited by lions? Uh, me neither. All right. God doesn't need there to be a... Uh, I'm not saying that there weren't any. We see lions through Scripture a couple of different times in that area of the world. But we certainly would assume that they didn't just naturally attack all the people. And so, but that's what's happening. The Lord sends these lions in, he attacks, and the people uh, go to uh, the king of Assyria and say, hey, we have a problem. Hey, hey for all their faults, they, at least they knew the problem. I don't know how they knew the problem. That's an amazing thing. If somebody can answer to me why and how they knew it was because they didn't fear God, I would love to know that. Maybe they're just exceptionally superstitious. I'm not saying they knew who God was exactly, but they knew it was the Lord of the land's fault, which gives you the indication it was not natural, which we would call that supernatural. So anyways, we, we have them calling to the king of Assyria, hey, give us a priest. We got to know what's going on. We need to know how to serve the Lord because we're, 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 we're terrified, basically. And so he does. And we find at the end of verse number 28, where we just read, that that priest comes in and the Bible says clearly, he taught them how. To fear the Lord. So before they did not know how to serve God. Now what do they know? How? They know how. Look at their response. Verse number 29. How be it? That's never good. All right, you don't want a how be it right after you know what you're supposed to be doing. Right? I, I've, I've seen this translation take place in my kids' minds often. Tell them what to do. You know what the next word that would describe the situation? How be it? They did not do what they were told to do. That's what's happening, all right? How be it? Every nation made gods of what? Their own. And verses 29 and 30 and 31 tells who made kings or who made gods and what kind of gods they made. Verse 32. Now, here's where I want to get to. 
What's the first five words of verse 32? So they what? Now, if, if, if we got a period right there, so they feared the Lord, period. We go, hey, lesson learned. All right, I don't know what the whole building idols to your own stuff is, but hey. But it doesn't. What does it say? So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests. Verse 33, it says it again. They feared the Lord, but what? How be it? And served their own gods. Go all the way down to verse number 39. But the Lord your God you shall fear. He shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Here's that word again. How be it? They did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. Verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images. I read this section, and then I reread it, and then I read it some more, and then I kept reading it. Not because I never thought about it before, but I'm thinking, how is it that they can fear the Lord? The Bible tells no lies, so they fear the Lord. And the very next statement, every single time, so they feared the Lord, but they did exactly what he told them not to do. So they feared the Lord, and they made their own images. So they feared the Lord, and serve their own gods. So I, I decided to place it this way. Not only do we have some see the Lord as the Lord of others, but we see to others, He is the Lord to add. He is the Lord to add. Now, for those of us that have born and raised and immersed in the Word of God, this is a foreign concept to us because we understand Christianity, by definition, is exclusive. Not in that nobody can be a part of it, but it's exclusive in the aspect that we are all about absolutes and the fact that there's one way and there's only this and only that. But the reality is that's a foreign concept to anybody who hasn't been immersed in the Word of God their entire life. This is what we see evident in all, every false religion that claims to be Christian. You, you, the list is endless. I don't care which religion you want to put underneath this category, but this is the problem of false religions is, now some of them don't claim that God is Lord at all, but those that claim that God is Lord, for instance, Catholics, Methodists, Lutherans, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it all, they all say that Jesus is Lord on some level or God is Lord, but they always say God is Lord and... Uh, you need to do this, this, and this. Yeah, Jesus is Lord, and I need to do this, this, and this. Uh, Jesus, I, I see Lord as being somebody that he's fearing, but I, I also think we should do this, this, and this. Hey, hey anybody with, uh, with any, uh, that wants this, uh, a solid future for themselves and their family has to stand back and look at the Bible and go, wow, that, that has the chance of making a life worth living. And for many people, they have taken the word of God and they have added principles of this word to their life. And without a doubt, because it's biblical, it has improved their life. But the reality is, he is not your Lord if he is only part. God is not in the business of being part of your religion. God is not in the business of being part of your life. God has no desire of being one of your gods. God's only desire is to be the Lord of lords and King of kings of not only your heart, but your life and your children and every decision you make. 
I think it's very frightening to understand so often in our lives uh, and in the lives of people today. They can recognize the Lord for who he is. But when it comes to the end of the day, they're taking a little bit of the Lord and saying, I like having this part of the Lord. I like the Lord that blesses. I like the Lord that gives me food. I like the Lord that healeth. I like the Lord that comforteth. I don't like the Lord of judgment. I like the Lord of love, but I don't like the Lord of wrath. I like the Lord of the, I'm sorry, he's the Lord and he gets to decide what he is on what day to who. And I don't get to sit there and say, I'm going to add this part, but I'm going to keep this part. I'm going to add that part, but this is still mine. This is so evident happening over and over and over in the word of God with devastating consequences. I think the saddest illustration of all of this is found when Jesus Christ took on human flesh and was walking in Jerusalem and in Israel, on his, in, in the earth, you see this, the permeating idea within Jews. Because they had taken what God had given them in the Old Testament, the law, and they had put it on the throne. And on their throne was works sitting right next to God. It was not about the lawgiver, it was about the given law. And the reality is when the children of Israel turned their back on God in the Old Testament, they fully accepted and immersed themselves in the concept of the rules being actually in the place of where God belonged. Hebrews chapter 9 condemns them for that. And when it's condemning them for that, they see, God calls that Old Testament law a shadow. Or if we could, a picture. A picture. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. I illustrated this to young people the other day in class. Illustrate it this way. This is where we find the average person today that looks at rules and, 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 and laws and commandments as a way to heaven and taking the place and adding it to God. It's, it's as if a young lady who is engaged to be married to a young man and that young man is called off to war. And as he goes off to war, she has the memories of the times they've had together. But the only physical thing she has is she has a picture of him. And she puts that picture up on the the, the dresser. And every day she looks at that picture and she longs for the day that they're going to be able to be together. And and is is looking forward to the time that they can be married and spend the rest of their life together. and, And that's the only part of him that she has while he's away at war is the picture. But wouldn't you know it? He does survive the war. He comes home. And he comes home and there he is in living color in 3D form. And the real person is standing right there. And she's holding that picture to her chest. And she looks at him and says, you know what? I'm so in love with this picture. I don't need you. That's what the Jews did when Jesus Christ showed up. They said, I'm so in love with this picture. That when the Messiah showed up, they said, I don't need that. What the most devastating part of that illustration is this. The picture they were holding on to, that's the temple. That's Jerusalem. What happened just a few, one generation after Christ was gone? It was destroyed. So guess what they didn't even have? Not even the picture. I wonder how many people today are going to go and they're going to go to church And they've got a picture. They have their version of God right here. 
They have the God that's made in their image here. They believe in the Lord. That's why they're in church. They believe of the God of the Bible. That's why they want to come to church. But at the end of the day, they're going to hold to this picture because this picture makes no demands. Uh, this picture doesn't tell them that they're supposed to be cooking. This picture doesn't tell them that they're supposed to have the relationship of a wife. This picture does nothing except just be a picture. And I can dictate how I want to live and I can still hold on to the picture. That's not the Lord of the Bible. He's not a picture. He's a real person. And he desires a real relationship. And today somebody needs to take the picture and they need to set it to the side and say, okay, it's not the Lord to add. It's the Lord of Lords. Christian, I wonder how much of God is more of a picture than a reality. What are we holding to today? Where's our accountability today? Not only do we see, some see him as the Lord of others, others that he is the Lord to add, but lastly we see he ought to be the Lord of me. Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. Boy, if there's anybody that epitomizes this principle, it would be the Apostle Paul. I mean, what Apostle Paul did for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect? Absolutely not. But man, what an example of somebody who once he got it, he got it. We know the Apostle Paul. We know he was religious. We know he understood all that was going on with the Bible and the Old Testament. And he understood that. And he sat at the feet of the smartest people of his day and age. And, and he understood that. And with all the fervor that he had, he was doing what he believed was right for the cause of the Lord. But then one day on the road to Damascus, he had a front to front with the Lord, just like Pharaoh. But there was a very different response. Look at Acts chapter 9. We know the verse, but I want to look at it. Verse number 3, And as he journeyed, this is Paul, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And here it is. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Same question, phrased a little different. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou, excuse me, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord... What wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and shall be told thee what thou must do. In verse number 20, all the way up through verse 19, we have God speaking to Ananias and what he's supposed to do to Paul. In verse number 20, the next time we see Paul doing something, in verse number 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. You know what you see in the life of Paul? You know where the Lord ought to be? He ought to be the Lord of you say, well, in what way? Well, that's easy. Every way. You know, I think, first of all, uh, uh, two quick points on this and we're done. I think he ought to be Lord of me in my life of Christianity. So many of us, when the Lord has allowed us to gain victory over some sins of particular nuisance, we may feel that we are pretty good, at least for a while. We may not say it. But we think, hey, thank you, Lord. You allowed me to get victory over that. Appreciate that. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. 
Imagine yourself a living house, if you would for a minute. God comes in to rebuild the house. And as he comes in to rebuild the house at first, perhaps, you know, he's, he's dealing with the structure. And he's cleaning out those drains and making sure everything's flowing right as far as the drains go. And he's making sure the foundation is shored up. He's making sure that the roof isn't leaking anymore. And we look at that and go, oh man, that needed done. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Oh man, I needed that. That was devastating. That was a, that was a pain to always be putting a bucket underneath that leaky roof. Oh God, thank you. That, that was always backing up. Thank you for eliminating that from my life. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're like, man, this is pretty good. Don't have a leaky roof. And the foundation is solid. And the pipes seem to be going good and uh, I think we should just use a little paint over here and, and maybe a little backsplash over here and maybe a new cabinet here uh, maybe swap out a faucet here we're going to be good and then all of a sudden one day uh, 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 one of those huge cranes shows up with a big old ball on the side of it we're like wait a minute Lord this was a nice little cottage what are you doing he's like well I'm putting an addition on this cottage what I'm good I don't need no addition. No, no, you're getting an addition. Bam, there goes the wall. Man, it's painful and it hurts and we're growing. Comfort zone is thrown in the trash. And God, why are you doing this? I don't understand this. And all of a sudden the addition is done. We're like, oh, Lord, man, I can't believe you got me through that. That's amazing. And then all of a sudden we wake up one morning and the roof's gone. What? It's gone. Yeah, you need a second story. We're going to put a second story on this place because we need to expand what you're doing. And it seems like it goes on and on. You say, well, I don't, well, what in the world are you doing, Lord? You know what he's doing? Is he's trying to take your little cottage that you're happy about and he's trying to turn it into a palace. You know why he wants it to be a palace? Because a king is living there. And we wonder why, God, why are you doing this? I don't understand this. He said, hey, you made me Lord of your life. Why don't you make me a house worth living in? I look at all the times God went into somebody's house. The very first time God goes into somebody's house on this earth is Abraham. Right? The three men show up and they're talking to Abraham. Scripture is very clear. One of them was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's having a lunch there with Abraham. And Abraham goes and kills a fatted calf. And they have a long day conversation and sit and talk. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Shows up in his house. Next time you see God walking into a person's house is the New Testament in the form of Jesus Christ. But you know what? I got to thinking about this. You know, God made a personal visit to Abraham's house. Lot was just an hour walk away because you could see it. God did not go to Lot's house. And I think it's this. I think there's some houses he feels real comfortable in and houses he's not comfortable at all. You know what Lord of my life is? Lord of my life is God... If you need to demo this whole thing and start over, do your thing. Hey, Lord, I, I don't know how this is going. I don't see the blueprints because you haven't let me in on that. But I'm okay because you're Lord and I got to trust you in this. That's where he's supposed to be Lord of me. He's able to come in and say, okay, this is what I'd like to change. Okay, God, we're going to do our best to change it. Let's do this. It's not, well, Lord, are you sure? Because I'm pretty happy about that part. Are you sure I just put that backsplash in? I like it. He's like, no, those aren't going to go with the color scheme I'm fixing to put in at all. I wonder how much he's Lord of me every day. Shortly after joining the Navy, a new recruit asked his officer if he could get a weekend pass to go to a wedding. And as he handed in the pass, he said, yes, but be back 
by 7 o'clock Sunday night. He said, but you don't understand. I'm in the wedding. And the Navy guy looked at him and says, no, you don't understand. You're in the Navy. You know what I think a lot of Christians are? They're looking at God going, hey, you don't understand. It's just me. And God's looking at him and he said, no, you don't understand. You're in my army. And we have plans. You may not know the plans yet, but I got plans. And this is what I do. And I'm Lord. You said I could be Lord. Let's not kick me off the throne now. And then, of course, not only Lord of me in that aspect, but Lord of me in light of eternity. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. John 14, 6 still says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's not an added to. It's not he belongs to somebody else. No, he should be Lord of me. And in light of eternity, this is the most important aspect of him being Lord. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. We talked earlier about how Jesus Christ looked to the disciples and said, whom do men say that I am? They said, some Elias, some this, some that. And then he said, but whom do you say that I am? And what was Peter's response? Thou art the Christ. And in that phrase, the Christ, what he's saying, you are the Savior of the world. You are the Lord of lords and King of kings. That's what Peter was saying. And Peter looked, Christ looked at Peter and goes, Blessed art thou, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father. Hey, he's not just Lord of others, and he's not just Lord to add, but he should be Lord of me in aspect of my eternity. You know, Pharaoh had the chance to choose the Lord as his. But in the end, he said, you can take the Lord with you. And he can be yours, but I don't want him. We see the nations in 2 Kings 17 and many times in Scripture looking at the Lord and say, hey, yeah, that sounds cool. The lions will leave us alone? Okay, come on, Lord. We'll take some of you too. And then we'll have Moloch over here and sacrifice my kid. And we'll, we'll, we'll take you, Lord, over here, but I'm still going to do blood sacrifices over here. I'll take you, Lord, over here, but I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'll, I'll take some of you, Lord, because I got bad things happening in my life. So, yeah, I'll take some of that. It's like we're adding a topping to an ice cream sandwich. That's not God. He's the whole meal. He's everything. When we ought to be making him the Lord of me. What is keeping him, keeping you from making him Lord of you today? Someone once wrote and asked Emily Post, who was the etiquette expert of past days, and asked this question, what is the correct procedure when one is invited to the White House but has a previous engagement? She replied, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command and it automatically cancels any other engagement. You know what the Lord has done to every single person on the face of the planet? He's invited them to a dinner. And you know what? It's not a command because he's left it up to you. But may I say, cancel all plans and accept the invitation. He's not just Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's Lord of me. And He can be Lord of you.
Father, we thank you for this day. What an amazing God we serve. What an amazing Lord we have. God, forgive us when we do not place you in your rightful place in our hearts and lives. God, help us to treat you more like Lord every single day. Help us to be more submitted to your will. Help us to be more committed to follow the ways that you have for us. And Lord, I pray most of all this morning, I pray for those that are sitting here that have never made you Lord of their life. They may know who you are. They may understand the Bible on on some level. They've maybe heard what you have done. They've heard about the cross. They've heard about this great sacrifice on Calvary. But Lord, it's just a story. It's a convenience. It's something that can help them in a hard time, but it's never become the Lord of their life. Lord, would this morning be the day they accept the ultimate invitation to come and eat with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings at the table of spiritual blessings and eternal value. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody